It's go time. It was a crazy weekend in the Canadian Football League. Probably the best one we've had in weeks where every game seemed to come down to the last minute and each one had its story to tell. Welcome everyone to Third Down Gamble. Don Charbon along with Heath Graham. So much to talk about in terms of the games. We'll maybe just pick a couple of highlights of things that had happened. Sort of as talking teaching points and then we'll go from there. The um, game between Saskatchewan and Edmonton. Great football game. Again, Edmonton starts slow and then they get back into it. 51 seconds to go. The Riders are down by nine. They are first down at about the 36-yard line. We had seen earlier in the season where Chris Jones, in a similar sister, in a similar situation, had decided to go for a field goal, being down by two scores, knowing that in the offing is going to be a short kick. So you've got to make it anyway, regardless of what you score first. Saskatchewan, in this case, decides to continue down the field and try to get the touchdown. Chewing up time... Your thoughts on not going for the field goal when the opportunity availed, knowing that a kickoff ensued? Hindsight is always twenty twenty. There's no right call or wrong call in these situations. You have to really go with your gut and, and what you're feeling. You either do what Chris Jones did earlier with the Elks in the season where you kick the, the field goal, get the sure points, and then you're trying to get the ball back. You know you need to score a touchdown. You can air it out and hope for an interference penalty, something along those lines to get an extra play, get it in the end zone. Or you feel the necessity to get that touchdown first, and then you only need a field goal on that second possession. So your yards that you need to gain are significantly less. Personally, I I like taking the points when you have that opportunity first you you need two scores get that first score you have a first down at the 35 yard line take one crack at it if you're not successful kick the field goal it won't have run a lot of time off the clock with an incomplete pass then you're playing to get the ball back and and go deep trying to go second down third down in those situations you tend to eat up a little bit more time leaving yourself with more of a challenge later on which is exactly my point the Rough Riders with 51 seconds to go. Okay, so they try that play. They, they toss the ball out to Jamal Morrow. He, he doesn't hang on to it. The clock stops. You could have then, on second down, kicked the field goal. The rule in the CFL is in the last three minutes, after a field goal, you have to kick off. There is no ands, ifs, or buts. It used to be that the team scored upon could take the ball at their own 35, but they did away with that for this very purpose, that you have an opportunity to win. If you get a short kick, we're going to keep that option available to you. However, Saskatchewan chose not to think about that. And what was very interesting is in the post-game press conference, nobody even asked Craig Dickinson, why didn't you? It's a viable option. Down nine, you have to get a short kick somewhere. It has to happen. So why not get the three... Put yourself down by six. Yes, it's the harder of the two to get is the touchdown. Why not do it that way and put all your eggs into that basket 
knowing that at least you've got three out of the way, you only need the one score. I agree. I, I would generally trend that way as well. Again, had it worked out in the rider's favor, had had they scored a touchdown and then get the, the ball back, then it's a, a field goal opportunity to tie. You look like a hero or you look like a goat in these in these scenarios. How you play it versus the end result sometimes is a, a funny balancing act. You always look like the genius when it works out in your favor. Taking the sheer points, and we've seen other situations, not just in, in this game in particular, sometimes the better play is to take the, the sure points, get yourself within that one score if that's what you need to do. The Riders had their chances in this game. If we look at all four games this weekend, every team had an opportunity to dictate the outcome of the game in the final three minutes. It was, as you alluded to, an exciting weekend of football. It was everything that you wanted, and there was great plays to get teams in positions to win. There was big errors that cost teams a loss. This one, the, the biggest play that affected the outcome was probably the safety given up that turned it into a two-score game as well. If we wanted to really break it down, we can look at that as as what was the big turning point. I give credit to the booth in this one, and I give credit to the CFL and its rules committee for this. Anytime it's apprehended that there may have been a score, the booth can get involved without any of the coaches making a challenge to say there was a score on this play. I love that. Now, Chris Jones was more than ready to challenge the play because he felt that they had made the safety touch on the play and that uh, Jake Dolagala had not got in front of that goal line, which he only missed by (laughs) mere centimeters. It did change the tenor of the game completely at that moment because the riders who were playing for one score now all of a sudden had to play for two. The problem I have, I guess, is that if you're playing for the win, some coaches will say, if you're inside the 25, you go for the touchdown regardless. The riders weren't there. They were at the 36. Kick the field goal. The wind was negligible. Lowther's very reliable. Brett Lowther could have made that kick and the riders are kicking off. And yes, it's a 30% chance at best that you get the onside kick, but you were going to depend upon it anyway. What difference did it make? You may as well get the points and see what you can do with the kick. If you get the kick and you leave yourself time, Edmonton's reeling suddenly and you know you never know. I mean, we had CJ Sims muff a kickoff and give up a game in Regina earlier in the season. Edmonton losing on that account. Stepping south of the border, Cleveland running back Nick Chubb had his knee destroyed. This is the same knee that he had blown up in college by a hit by Mika Fitzpatrick of the Pittsburgh Steelers. This goes back to a question that you and I danced around last year. So that'd be 2022. Is it time to end tackles, knees and below, especially from the front or the side? I don't mind so much from the back if a guy's trying to run you down and grabs you around the leg. I think that's fine. But it's kind of getting back to that whole rugby notion of hips to shoulders, as it were. Because it's just sad to watch an all-star in the NFL play 
part of a game on a Monday night with the National Showcase, and he's gone. We saw that with Aaron Rodgers the week before. That's two stars of the league gone. Now, Aaron Rodgers, the hit, I don't think, was the main problem. Just the way he twisted and tried to get away from the contact, that's where his Achilles blew out. People pay money to watch the stars play. At what point do we say that's enough? That, that receivers, running backs, even defensive linemen, you can't chop block. You can't tackle below the knees. It's a great time to bring this up, not only because of the injuries, but given that the Rugby World Cup is currently ongoing. I watched a little bit of Fiji and Australia over the weekend, and it is exciting to watch. And rugby is a very tough sport. But the fact that they have the the waist-to-shoulders tackling really changes how you play. And yes, injuries occur. Injuries occur in every sport. So I'm not going to say that rugby is a safer sport necessarily than, than American football. But the way you have to conduct yourself on the field does help to protect the players. Kudos to ABC and their coverage for not showing 15 different angles of the replay of of Chubb's knee getting blow out, blown out. I appreciate that. Sometimes in this world, in this era, we seem to play things to death. So I, I appreciate that they chose not to replay it. Troy Aikman just told us it was as bad as you can imagine. And we all moved on. They did show the replay in Heinz Field. The crowd collectively groaned. So you knew it was a bad scene. I believe the size strength and speed of players as it's evolved over time does make this kind of hit more dangerous as well. There will be people that argue we're getting too soft and we're protecting players too much that it is a physical sport. It's still always going to be a physical sport. We need to protect the stars. We need to look at the long-term future of athletes in general and how many of the guys that played professional football, professional hockey, in the 50s, 60s, and 70s could hardly walk by the time they reached a normal person's retirement age because of the wear and tear on their bodies. We've seen studies on CTE and concussions and the after effects and what can happen as well. We're not taking physicality out of sport. We just need to be smarter about how we do it. And it's for the the long-term benefit of seeing these stars continue to perform year after year. So we're not seeing running backs aging out by 31, 32 years old, that they can play into their mid to late thirties at a high level. We're protecting quarterbacks so that we can see guys go into lengthy careers. You look at Damon Allen played into his forties in the CFL. You look at John Elway, Tom Brady, Aaron Rodgers, Brett Favre, the list goes on of, of players that performed at a very high level into their late 30s and early 40s. But there's a longer list of guys that careers were cut short because of bad form, unfortunate injuries, and unable to recover and make a full comeback. Trey Roberson of the Calgary Stampeders hit William Stanback of the Montreal Alouettes below the knee, broke his leg. It's happened time and time and time again. I'm not saying that these are dirty players or dirty hits. They're allowed. Problem I have is why are they allowed in the first place? Leagues complain that they want more scoring. Well, if you make it harder to tackle, in other words, you've got to be hips to shoulders, guess what? You're going to get more scoring because guys are going to miss tackles. The game is rough enough without 
this. Nobody walks onto a football field and thinks they're going to walk off without a bruise. It's sad to say this, but most games, you will see somebody leave the field and not return. That, to me, is about attrition, not about the game. And that's where I think our values need to be readjusted or corrected in terms of how we interpret what we see. These are human beings. They have families, parents, their community cares for them. Why do they have to be carted off? I'd I'd rather see a, a play like Chubb where he doesn't get that impact and he still is playing this week because then that creates excitement for the Cleveland Browns. It creates excitement for that division as to who's going to win first, all that sort of stuff. Now you kind of peg Cleveland down because their key weapon is gone. If we want to look at other sports as well, the NHL has done a lot of work recently to eliminate headshots. Now it's a game that still allows fighting. That's a whole other debate that I will not get into today, but just about the in-play impact of of body checks and, and leading to the head, similar to what the professional football leagues have come up with as far as leading with the crown of your helmet, that sort of thing. It used to be good hard hockey if a guy was coming across the middle and you absolutely blew him up. Now you can still check him. You can still knock him off the puck, but you're not trying to take his head off or you will be penalized for it. I look at quarterbacks in the CFL. Somebody like Matt Dunnigan is a prime example who played a very tough style of football took a lot of shots. It's amazing he had the length of career he did given the number of concussions he had. A very, very tough player. But I imagine what he could have done even beyond his current stats had there been some of these protections in place of the roughing the passer calls that we see now because there was a lot of hits that he took after he released the ball back in the day that was a good hard hit within the confines of the rule book that are now illegal and are 15-yard penalties or more. Speaking of quarterbacks, we have some veteran quarterbacks that are on the sixth game and beyond that may be coming back. Let's just do a quick rundown. Bo Levi Mitchell, will he be back with the Hamilton Tiger Cats? Jeremiah Mazzoli with Ottawa. But Trevor Harris, there's some noise that he may be back before season's end. My question to you is if you're... Taylor Powell in Hamilton or Jake Dolagala, Mason Fine in Saskatchewan. What are you thinking? Haven't you done enough to maintain the job? And until you really falter, shouldn't you be left in the position? Taylor Powell showed this week that he's capable of beating the top tier teams in the league. He had a phenomenal game against Winnipeg. If I'm the Hamilton Tiger Cats, I'm probably leaning towards Taylor Powell partially because of his on-field performance and partially because Bo Levi Mitchell has now been injured twice. He spent 12 weeks on the on the uh, injured reserve minimum. A great weapon to have in your back pocket in a playoff game should you need him, but I don't know if it's necessary to trot him out right now, even if he's deemed healthy enough to play. I don't feel that he's going to be 100% healthy to get back on the field this season, given what he's gone through with his myriad of leg injuries, he would probably get cleared to play before the end of the season. You run him back out, you run the risk of losing him again. I I would be tempted to keep him in limited game action before the playoffs. 
The Rough Riders are another interesting one. Jake Dolagala has matured leaps and bounds over the last month. He's shown that he is capable of running that Rough Riders offense. Mason Fine had a couple of flashes in his brief time as the starting quarterback. Right now, if if I'm the Riders, I'm probably putting Dolagala at one, Trevor Harris at two, and Mason Fine at three. Uh, again, it's a, a broken leg that Trevor Harris is recovering from as well. He is going to be limited no matter how much he thinks and the team thinks he's fully healed. There's going to be some mobility issues there as well. So if Dolagala continues to successfully lead this team and give them opportunities to win, I don't know that you go away from him. And this is kind of what I'm pointing to. It, what does it do for team chemistry? What does it do for direction? Both Harris and Mitchell are coming to the end of their careers. You've got Dolagala, Powell, Dustin Crum, say, in Ottawa, beginning their careers. They could be the guys that run your show for 10 years. You're never going to get that out of Harris. You're never going to get that of Mitchell, nor Mazzoli if he does come back. Could you blame Dustin Crum for what happened to Ottawa and their overall record? Partly. But then you could say the same about Mazzoli. When he was out there, they were still not winning. But Levi Mitchell, yes, he did beat the Red Blacks, but he also threw five picks doing it. I think if you get to a point where you've gone with somebody that's young and they've now played the preponderance of games in a season, as you drive towards the playoffs, you may as well put them in there. You can't, if you're Saskatchewan, worry about your job if you're Jeremy O'Day, because you're the one that brought them in in the first place. If they don't work out, it's still going to reflect on you. If it does work out, it reflects on you. So there's your bed that you've made. And I think in Ottawa, I think there's a lot more grace. And Hamilton will see how this plays out. If the Ticats keep knocking off the top teams and they've done it to BC in BC and, of course, Winnipeg, maybe everybody's good with what's happening. And, and Taylor Powell just continues. Another angle to consider here too, is it's not like any of these veteran quarterbacks have been long tenured with their current teams. Jeremiah is always in his second season with the Ottawa Red Blacks, but how many games has he actually played? It's a handful. Bo Levi Mitchell and Trevor Harris are both in their first seasons with their respective clubs, Calgary and, and Saskatchewan. It's not like there's this nostalgia or this need to send your star quarterback off with the correct send-off. Had, had Levi Mitchell still been in Calgary and he's the history he's had there, it's one thing. But yes, there's a lot of money spent to bring him to Hamilton. He's played in two games. It's not like he's he's the the franchise player that has led you to glory. How much does he have left in the tank? How much do any of these injured quarterbacks have left if they do make it back onto the field, we can talk about their ages and the, the myriad of injuries that they've had. If you're seeing any kind of success with the next wave, and, and we've talked about for the last couple of seasons, where is the next wave of quarterbacks? Who is the next star in this league? Well, we're seeing some guys with the opportunity now that have looked pretty darn good. And before we get away from first down, news out of the United States that the XFL and the USFL are deep into merger talks. Surprise to you? I wouldn't say a surprise based on the lack of success of the 
previous seasons. Spring League football in the U.S. has always struggled to find its way. Having two competing leagues vying for those eyeballs and for those players and for those TV deals, etc., was oversaturating the market. So this is probably the best opportunity that they have to continue the spring football experiment. Otherwise, it was going to be the matter of one league trying to run the other one into the ground, and that didn't really set up to benefit anybody. This will be the second time that the XFL has tried to find a dance partner to join them in the spring. In 2020, famously, they were ta- they were part of talking about talking with the CFL, which amounted to nothing. Doesn't mean that it won't happen this time with the USFL. Biggest stumbling blocks, since the rules are pretty close to the same between the two, it's of course, what do you do hub versus each team in its own site? What happens to the television deals? Because one network has one, one network has the other. And then the third thing is disparate starting dates. XFL starts, USFL, six weeks later, starts. There's no overlap other than maybe the last few weeks of the season. So now they've got to figure out where they're going to sit in the spring. That one probably isn't so big, but the television contracts, I think, are going to be a massive negotiation because each one has long-term deals with the networks, Fox and and ABC Disney. Yeah, that'll be interesting to watch as things progress. I And how many teams? We've got already conflicting markets between the two. Do those just fold into one team in New York, one team in Chicago? Do they go eight teams, 10, 12? <laughs> that remains to be seen. I have been a strong voice against the hub city for these types of leagues. It would be my hope if they do continue that they look at playing games in every franchise city. St. Louis has been the most well attended out of any city in, in either of these leagues. So I expect to see a strong presence there and then the major markets. An 8 to 10, possibly 12 team league is probably about the size that you're going to want to go and anything beyond that. And they're stretching their resources way too thin to be successful. Now let's consider the fan bases. Each were very, very vocal, loyal to their respective league. We know from firsthand experience how distressing it can be when another league, a startup league, comes and talks to the one that you've known all your life. How does the XFL fan base think about joining up with the USFL and vice versa? Each one of those, you have to consider, even though they're probably not first and foremost in the boardroom, that's your constituency that's keeping you afloat regardless of television. Well, as a lifelong fan of the Tampa Bay Tampa Bay Vipers, I would just like to say that um, building that fan loyalty with a league that's been around for two seasons isn't as big of an issue as it would be with a league with the history of the CFL, where the league itself has been around for 70 years, roughly, and Canadian football as a whole much longer than that. So I, I don't see that being as big of an issue. Sure, there are people that are opinionated one way or the other, whether they like the XFL and the personalities that bring you that, or they like the USFL, they should be able to work this out. I don't foresee that much animosity. As I said, there's not a lengthy history of either. You could argue that they both have provenance going back a number of years because they are relaunched defunct leagues 
but they didn't really come in with that fanfare and the, that even that history from what they had in previous iterations. And you get to what I was speaking to. The USFL, of course, in the 1980s was a spring league that made it for a few years. The XFL tried in around 2000, 2001. They tried again. And iteration three seemed to catch because they made it through a full season and immediately after that season are talking <laughs> to the rival league about maybe merging. This is fascinating to me. I imagine the CFL is probably happier that they merge and just consolidate everything so the CFL knows where player movement is going to be. Beyond that, I don't know that the CFL really cares if there's what kind of deal it takes. You have to look at it from the personnel perspective as well. If you're now dealing with only one league trying to recruit talent and potentially lure players away. Granted, we didn't see a lot of players moving south of the border. McLeod Bethel-Thompson and Darnell Sankey were the two big names, if you will. One has since recently returned to the CFL. Uh, the other one, there was a lot of family dynamics involved in in Bethel Thompson going south of the border. It's not necessarily those top tier stars, but it's where you're getting those next guys coming and reducing the size of that spring competition is going to help those CFL scouts and general managers recruit more players and a higher level of talent. If they do shrink, you know that there's going to be a lot of players coming available. Second down. As we tipped to it in the opening, the CFL had four <laughs> crazy games over this past weekend. Let's start with Toronto and Montreal. A last play field goal is blocked and the Alouettes lose to the Argonauts. A familiar theme with Toronto. That's the second time now within a year they've blocked a field goal at the end of a game to win. It was at one of the big things that jumped out to me was the fact that they even got back into a field goal position to win. It was, it was a matter of Toronto not dominating this game by any means. Montreal came and gave them an effort all throughout the game, a blocked field goal. We know famously there was two in the final couple of minutes of the gray cup game last year, Toronto finds a way to win and have proven now with their record and the, the two teams at the top of the West falling back a little bit. Toronto is the runaway favorite at this point for a repeat of the Grey Cup. Toronto, if I can put it this way, seemed like they were playing with house money. Think back to a moment in the game, and I believe the early in the fourth quarter, where they're actually third down inside their own 20, and they decide to go for it. In fact, they were inside their own 10, and they decide to go for it. And they get pulled out of the fire with a pass interference call. But what team does that except a team that wants to try different things? They, they did get a second life because of the penalty. Cody Fajardo and that Montreal offense just don't seem to quite get everything together when they need to. They, they were lucky to keep themselves in that game. It, it looked at one point like all they were going to need was a single to win the game. An ill-timed interception 
when really they needed to get into somewhere within field goal range. And whether you make the field goal or not, kick it through the end zone with no time left, that was the the way this game was trending in my mind. Fajardo throws it away. Toronto takes the lead. An amazing opportunity for, for Montreal to even get back into field goal range again, but really poorly managed, I thought, by the offensive play calling. And, and they kind of shot themselves in the foot. I couldn't understand on that play where Fajardo gets intercepted why they were throwing it so deep in the first place. That type of play takes more time to set up. Therefore, the quarterback is standing in there much longer. It gives more time for the defensive ends to get into him. And he was hit as he threw the ball. It wobbled in the Argos pick it off. It almost seemed like Toronto could put the game away at that moment. But to Montreal's credit, they came back and tried to make a big finish. Almost worked. If you're Toronto, you'd better take a little bit of heed from this that nobody's going to take you lightly. You better be prepared from here on out. Chad Kelly, 21 of 35, 275 in a touchdown pass. Fajardo was 30 of 39 for 274, a pick to which we alluded, and a touchdown pass himself. 30 completions for 274, you're averaging nine yards a pass completion. That's not going to put a f- lot of fear into a lot of defenses. No, again, we, we look at these numbers. We like to see over 10 yards for a completion. 12, 13 yards is is a decent day. This showed an inability to push the ball deep again, and it's something that Fajardo has struggled a bit with in Montreal this year. Uh, he had some success in previous seasons in Saskatchewan, but that receiving core was uh, maybe a little bit deeper. He's got Austin Mack in Montreal, who's a great target, but maybe lacking a little bit of, of help in those deep routes. And you have to give it to Toronto, their defense. When they need to step up, they do. And this one wasn't a matter of Chad Kelly dominating the game. It was a, an all-hands-on-deck and really, I felt that the defense was the difference maker. We moved later Friday night to the Rough Riders hosting the Edmonton Elks. Third game of the three games that they're going to be playing against each other. Of course, Edmonton needing the win to be considered in the conversation for the playoffs. And they do come up with it 36-27 to 27 in what was a hard-fought back-and-forth game that came down to the last couple of minutes again. 16 points by the Elks in the fourth quarter to zero for Saskatchewan was the difference maker. It's not that Saskatchewan was without its chances. Edmonton continues to gain momentum throughout these games. And Trey Ford now three and one since he took over as the starter. He's He's got this team moving the right direction and continues to excite with his, his playmaking ability as well. We talked about the next wave of quarterbacks when we were talking about Taylor Powell and Jake Dolagala. Dustin Crum, let's not forget about Trey Ford. He is a, a star and is going to be well talked about and, and well marketed as the face of this league for years to come. Trey Ford, when he scored that touchdown in the fourth quarter, it looked like the seas did part. He went up the middle and unlike Calgary where they had a spy on him all night with Cameron Judge. Saskatchewan didn't follow suit. So when the middle linebacker vacated, Ford took off and went for the score. The other 
big scrambling touchdown that he made was to Eugene Lewis. Ford buys time, rolls to his right, then pulls up and sees Lewis standing at the goal line by himself. I'm not sure what Nick Marshall was thinking at the time. Lewis caught the ball and walked into the end zone. Nick Marshall's been a bit of an enigma this season as well, and and he seemed to have given up on that play completely. We saw the Banjo Bowl game against Winnipeg. He seemed to be disinterested at times as well. So a dynamic player and a ball hawk when he puts his mind to it, but something definitely seems off. If we go back to the Elks offense a little bit here as well, Trey Ford, 13 out of 20 for 173 yards. So he's generally not putting up massive passing yards. That's one of the intangibles. He also, once again, ran for 70, uh, 8.8 yard average running the ball. And Kevin Brown, 19 carries for 175 yards. So a 9.2 average for Kevin Brown as well. So that offense is really rounding into shape and, and a double threat of uh, a strong receiving core, a capable passing quarterback, and then that that running attack of of Brown and Ford is tough to tough to defend. Two hundred and sixty five yards of rushing by the Elks on the night. You compare that to the Rough Riders, who at the beginning of the season said they were going to be a much more run oriented offense. They could only muster sixty one yards going the other way rushing. Jake Dolagala, twenty of thirty four for two thirteen three touchdowns and a pick. The other part of this game, I guess, that we can talk about is both sides on a, at least for Edmonton, it was a third down gamble deep in Saskatchewan's area to throw a touchdown pass. A.C. Leonard coming off the edge. I love the the trick plays and the little wrinkles that we see in the CFL. A.C. Leonard did start his professional career as a receiver, turned to the defense by Chris Jones, who seems to like to take offensively skilled players make them into defensive stars and he found another one here but went back to the roots and got ac leonard the touchdown not only was was that trick play well called saskatchewan's defense has now given up well over 200 rushing yards per game in the last two what needs to change on their defense to really start to bring that number down to a more reasonable stat well, let's give Saskatchewan's offense a little bit of credit too, just before we get away from it. On a second and one, they bring in Antonio Pipkin. He tosses the ball, finds Jamal Morrow. Had Pipkin actually thrown the ball to where Morrow could run to get it as opposed to stop to get it, they probably would have scored a touchdown on that play themselves. The defense for Saskatchewan, they have really fallen on hard times. Where they were sort of the linchpin at the beginning of the season, keeping the team in the game, now they're part of the reason as to why they're not anymore winning. The offense is putting up, let's throw away the game in Winnipeg, on average about 30 points a game. That should win you football games, and yet they are not doing so. We move to the Hall of Fame game, where the Winnipeg Blue Bombers are in Hamilton to take on the Tiger Cats, the Bombers who have struggled mightily in Hamilton outside of the Grey Cup, lose again. 29-23, to on a beautiful day in Hamilton for football, big crowd on hand, and the Tiger Cats continue their domination of the Blue Bombers in Hamilton during regular season. 2018 was the last time Winnipeg won in Hamilton, and who was the quarterback for the Hamilton Tiger Cats that day? Zach Kolaris. Taylor Powell had a fantastic game, protected the ball well, and I 
I thought Winnipeg's defense really gave up some big chunks of yardage in this one. We a, a rarity we saw a missed convert by Sergio Castillo run all the way back. It's a lot of work for two points, and, and we we don't see it often. It does happen from time to time in the CFL. I, I read an interesting discussion this week about whether a missed convert return should be worth more. It should be somebody was speculating that it should be worth a touchdown. They got shot down pretty much immediately because you look at the potential score on that play, the, the offense. So in this case, Winnipeg going for the convert, the maximum that they could score on the play is two points. Therefore the maximum that Hamilton could get by returning the ball all the way back is two points on a missed field goal. That's still an offensive play. If they have a, a fake, that play is still worth six points if they punch it in for a touchdown. Likewise, if the field goal is missed or blocked, return the other way, it's six points. So you you need to look at the, the maximum allowable points on a play, which is why this 100-plus yard run and all that work and effort was only worth two points. It was a big difference in the game, though. You take those two points off the board for Hamilton, you add that one point back on for Winnipeg, Suddenly it's a three-point game as opposed to a five or six point, and the outcome could have changed very rapidly. Zach Kolaris made some mistakes trying to force the issue to get them back into the game as well through some untimely interceptions that really turned the momentum towards the Tie Cats. It seems with Kolaris, he's either really on or really off. And again, this was another multi-turnover game that he put up was something that had happened to him a few times in Hamilton, which kind of created his ouster. Not that I'm suggesting he's going through this same process again, but it does give you pause for concern if you're the Blue Bombers. What is happening? Why suddenly in the last six weeks is Zach Claris throwing so many interceptions? Three against the Tiger Cats in this game. He was 21-35 to for 344. Again, monster numbers, but three picks really hurt them. Taylor Powell on the flip side, 20 of 26 for 236. And again, there's that 10 spot that I keep talking. Times their completions by 10. If that yardage is more than 200 in his case, which is 236, it means you're moving the ball down the field. One interception, one touchdown. Hamilton in that fourth quarter, though, kept Winnipeg at bay. Winnipeg had a couple of opportunities to try to do something about it. And the Tiger Cats either got a turnover or just stood tall and said, this isn't happening. The CFL season is long and there's a lot of momentum shifts throughout the season. You look at both the Tiger Cats and the Edmonton Elks and where they were a month ago, a month and a half ago versus where they are today. And they have started to trend in the right direction. You've got teams kind of middle of the pack of the Montreal Alouettes have had chances and then let them slip away. Saskatchewan's had chances and let them slip away. And you're seeing and we'll get to in a minute here, the BC Lions were given a scare this week as well. Winnipeg has shown to be beatable. They've lost to Hamilton. They've lost to Ottawa. They've lost to Saskatchewan. There's some teams in there that were a bit of a surprise win, but showing once again that any team is beatable any week. Any team that's worth its merit to be on the field will always improve from a sluggish start if they are serious about winning. You're seeing that with most of these teams that struggled off the top. The outrider 
the Ottawa Red Blacks. Let's get to them. The late game, Ottawa in BC. The Red Blacks with a 19-point lead going, looked like, to victory with it. And a fourth quarter, and this is why I've always argued that Vernon Adams Jr. is one of the greatest quarterbacks ever. How many times has he been a part of a massive comeback in a game that you think they didn't have a chance? And here it is, the BC Lions win 41-37. to And unlike Zach Kolaris, Vernon Adams overcame three interceptions in this one to lead his team back to victory. This reminded me a lot of Ottawa's comeback win against Winnipeg, where it looked like the team had the game in hand. Suddenly... Ottawa failed to successfully move the ball and run off any time. And BC with that offense, with Vernon Adams and that receiving core, they don't need a lot of time to get points back on the board. We saw Terry Williams with a huge missed field goal return for a touchdown that gave them that momentum. They get the ball back and Vernon Adams finds Lucky Whitehead in the corner of the end zone for the go-ahead points, which will prove to be the winner. Unfortunately for Ottawa, just announced today, Kicker Lewis Ward is out for the remainder of the season with a torn pectoral muscle. I believe he got injured trying to make the tackle on Williams in that missed field goal. So That play proved devastating on so many levels for the Ottawa Red Blacks, but they still had the lead. And to their credit, in the final minute, they go for it all and try to throw a deep pass to put the game out of reach. Dustin Crum throws the ball deep downfield and it just goes out of the fingertips of Justin Hardy. Clock stops. Ottawa has to punt the ball away, and the Lions march down the field and actually, with a chance to tie the game, decide to go for it. Penalties huge in this final drive against Ottawa. This was the kind of weekend of football that makes the CFL such a spectacle to watch. It was back and forth in so many games. The the storyline changes throughout and to have all four games come down to these final minutes with, with so much opportunity, I love the way the clock operates in the final three minutes of a game as well, giving teams that are behind an opportunity to get more plays in to create offense and go for the win. Nothing's more frustrating than watching a team run out a minute and a half, two minutes of clock by taking a knee when you've got the longer play clock or the, the, the running clock, as it were, in the NFL this is why the CFL's clock management is is so much more engaging than the NFL. At least in the last three minutes, it's far more engaging. I will argue the other way when it comes to the previous 12 or 27 in the half because they could do a lot to fix that 20-second clock. Dustin Crum, 19 of 30 for 233. He had one interception. Vernon Adams Jr., as you mentioned, three interceptions on 26 completions of 37 attempts. Three interceptions, but three touchdown passes. I'm just so impressed. I I think if there's any quarterback that I want to be on the field with when the pressure's on and we're behind and we need something, it's Vernon Adams Jr. He did it against Winnipeg in Montreal. He did it against Calgary in Calgary twice, once with the Alouettes, once with the Lions. This guy... He doesn't fear a deficit. He just goes for it and is going to work any way he can to figure out how to get his team on top. Ottawa, my goodness, what is their headspace 
right now. It's got to be frustrating and, and unfortunate because I like Bob Dice and I like the opportunity he's been given. Over the last three seasons combined, they have less wins than the Argonauts have this season already. Something is off in, in Ottawa. I come into the season the last couple of years with a lot of optimism for the Red Blacks, and I think they're going to be better than they are. I just don't know what it's going to take to get them over the hump. Unfortunate injuries to Jeremiah Mazzoli have been a huge hit and a huge setback. Devontae Dedman injured, now Lewis Ward injured. There's a lot of pieces there that are just unfortunately not able to come to play. I think their biggest problem is on offense, and I don't know what else they need to do to change it right now, but they need to look this offseason to maybe make some some big changes to that lineup. Bob Dice, in a post-game interview, standing outside the locker room, was asked, what is the message that you give to your team after a loss like this? He rolled his eyes and almost out of anger was going to say something, and then he calmed down and said, look, it doesn't matter how we lose, it's just that we lose is the problem. He pointed to the locker room and he said, it's not their fault that we lost, it's ours, the coaches. We let them down. They did everything possible. Anecdotally, there were Ottawa Red Blacks crying in the locker room over that loss. You tell me it doesn't matter. Yeah, the the effort is there, but something is still amiss. And what it's going to take to turn things around, you know, we, we look at, again, I mentioned the, the Edmonton Elks and where they were a month ago compared to where they are today. They need to figure out how to win. There was some optimism there when they got their first win of the season, and then they got their big comeback win against Winnipeg. Things were looking like they were on track. That now appears to have been the anomaly versus Edmonton was was struggling to start the year and find their identity. They got into some close games that they didn't quite pull out the win. The change at quarterback was a bit of a spark, and now they're finding ways to win the games that two months ago they were finding ways to lose. Ottawa is in that mode right now where they're finding ways to lose these games. It's going to take something to change it. And once it does, they can start to roll off some wins here again. But right now, this is the broken team that I'm seeing in the CFL. I'm going to put something out there that you used last week. You talked about the Winnipeg Blue Bombers and going 4-14. and And they were saying at that time, they were the best 4-14 and they've ever seen. Ottawa, I think, is tripping into that territory where they're probably the best three-win team that we've seen in this league for a long time. People had to have patience with Ryan Walters and Mike O'Shea. I think they have to do the same thing with Sean Burke and Bob Dice. 2023 isn't going to be the year, but you keep this unit together, you make a couple of changes that you need, and maybe 2024 we're singing a different tune about the Ottawa Red Blacks. I agree with that statement for sure. It's a matter of finding the right fits and and Paul Lapolice was not the right fit in Ottawa as a head coach. I can go through and, and list off those head coaches in Winnipeg prior to Mike O'Shea that were not the right fit for the Winnipeg Blue Bombers as well. Once you have those front office people and those coaches that you believe are going to right the ship, then it's the buy-in. It's those little changes here and there. You get a couple of veteran free agents that can can help inspire and you start to chip away they might not be a 12 and 6 team next year but if they get to 7 and 11 8 and 10 
that's positive momentum. It's going to get them into the playoff race in the East. You start to believe the next year you start to get to that 10 win plateau. Anything can happen. Four games in the CFL this weekend. Keep saying that, but you'll be surprised. There's going to be a three-game weekend coming up. First off, we've got the Saskatchewan Rough Riders in Ottawa to take on the Red Blacks. The Rough Riders are two-and-a-half-point favorites heading into Ottawa. Two things, I guess. So the Rider defense going to come around. And can Ottawa bounce back from what happened in British Columbia? Red Blacks gave the Lions everything they could for 58 minutes plus in this game and let it slip away at the end. This one is, is the test I feel for the red blacks is how much do they take away from that game? Knowing that they gave one of the best teams in the league that much of a fight. They are back at home. That red blacks fan base is solid. I expect a close game in this one. The rough riders I like what I've seen from Jake Dolagala leading that offense. I've got to give a slight edge to the home team in this one, so I'm going to take the Red Blacks at home. Ottawa at home has only won twice. Saskatchewan is a team that struggles on the road. The East has won more games against the West still than the West has won against the East. Ottawa, this is their last faint hope clause that they're playing out right now. If they want to have any prayer of making the playoffs. They have to rattle off five straight. They have to start here. The Rough Riders still have some grace, but it's starting to slip away. Calgary plays this weekend. If the Stampeders win and get within a game, then that game in Calgary means everything. There was a question asked of Craig Dickinson, is this starting to feel like 2022? And he denied it. He said the people in that locker room are far different, but they are starting to fall back into old habits and losing after September was one of them. I'm going to go with the Red Blacks at home. I think they're overdue. Dustin Crum showed enough in BC to be named Offensive Player of the Week. He's turned a corner. Maybe the offense will turn a corner with Kahari Jones play calling as well. Second game, the BC Lions, who have absolutely dominated the Edmonton Elks the last two seasons are seven and a half point favorites as they meet them later on Friday night. It's a different team that they're facing, especially with Trey Ford running the show on the other side. This game could be the most fascinating in terms of fireworks. I guess one way to look at this is the team in the BC Lions that have shut out the Edmonton Elks twice this season are only favored by seven and a half points, which means if their defense keeps up, they only need a, a touchdown and a single to to cover the spread. I don't anticipate a third straight shutout for the Lions over the Elks. Trey Ford is the difference maker in this one. I still expect a Lions win, but I believe that Edmonton will keep it closer. We saw the game last week. BC struggled a little bit with the Red Blacks and, and didn't pull out the win till the end. I think this one's going to be close as well. BC to win. Edmonton beats the spread. BC has a game in hand over Winnipeg. This is the game that they can make up against them. 
but they don't need it because they know they've got Winnipeg coming to town anyway, and whoever wins that game will likely win first place. Edmonton, in the dogfight that they are to stay in the playoff race, has to win. I'm going to go against the spread. Edmonton has played stronger at home, and Trey Ford is somebody that BC has never faced. All those other wins were over Taylor Cornelius and Jarrett Dagey. This is a Trey Ford run team that is going to press that defensive line. I like the Elks in this one. We move to Saturday afternoon, and Montreal treks to the Rocky Mountains to play the Calgary Stampeders. The Stampeders, who have struggled at home as well, are underdogs in this game. Two and a half points to the Alouettes, who have lost four straight. How do you figure that? I don't figure that. I'm going to give the edge to the Calgary Stampeders at home in this one. From what I've seen lately of the Montreal Alouettes, they are struggling to find their identity. If you can call it an upset for Calgary to win at home, I'm calling it an upset. I'm taking the Stampeders. We tend to forget that Jake Mayer, we tend to think of him as some sort of veteran in this alignment of quarterbacks, but he's barely ahead of Jake Dolagala, Dustin Crum, Taylor Powell. They, he just hasn't had all that much time. I don't think he's been the problem in Calgary. I think Pat Delmonico has been the problem in Calgary. He's a very conservative approach to the game. When the Stampeders have opened up the the playbook, looked for receivers deep, that's when they press teams and we get these wild shootouts. They, like Ottawa, are a fascinating watch. Rarely does a game not come to the last three minutes. The trouble is the Stampeders are two and four when they're there. Who do you like? I'm taking the Stampeders at home. I think Montreal coming across. Right now the Alouettes are reeling. And even though they gave Toronto everything they could handle, Calgary's a different animal because those Stampeders, again, themselves are in a playoff race. There's going to be a lot of energy in Calgary. Stampeders to upset. The final game, the Hamilton Tiger Cats are in Toronto. Take on the Argonauts. The Argonauts, nine and a half point favorites over Hamilton in this one. I don't mind that Toronto's favored. I don't think the spread is going to hold. I'm with you on that one. Nine and a half is a big spread, especially considering what we have seen from the Tiger Cats of late. Toronto's getting into that position here now where they've got a home playoff date wrapped up. They've got the the Argonauts have the home playoff date wrapped up. They've clinched first place in the East, so we know they're going to be hosting the Eastern Final. Not that they don't want to win and not that they don't want to beat those rivals down the road, Hamilton Tiger Cats, but you have to start looking at load management of who plays how many snaps. Chad Kelly is one of the two quarterbacks in the league that has started every game for their team this year, him and Jake Mayer being the two we know he got a little bit banged up earlier on in the season as well. So I believe that Coach Dinwiddie and that crew are going to start looking at the risk-reward factor. I like Toronto at home. They've played very well at BMO Field, but I don't think that they cover this spread. So Toronto to win, Hamilton to come, to beat the spread. It's got to be a tough situation. Toronto are in rarefied air in terms of their overall record. I may be wrong in stating this, but I don't believe they've ever been 11-1 and before to start a season. Doug Flutie aside, I don't think he even got that far. With Toronto having six games left and making it to the East Final, 
this is where Ryan Dinwiddie's going to make his money. How do you keep this team motivated? What are you going to use to keep these teams compet- his team competitive against all comers? Because you don't want to lose your edge. With a month and a half to go in the season, Toronto, that's a long way to wait before a next really meaningful game. I guess you could argue maybe the game in Winnipeg might fall into that category, but the Argonauts could lose out and it ain't going to matter. Yeah, these next two weeks, I think, are the the two remaining games that have the biggest motivation for the Argonauts. They always want to beat the Tiger Cats. They get that Grey Cup rematch against the Winnipeg Blue Bombers. That one is going to have a lot on the line of, of either team showing where they feel that they stand in this league. Beyond that, I agree with you. They're not going to have much left to play for. So, so I, I think it's full effort against Hamilton, possibly full effort against Winnipeg. And then you start looking at getting people healthy and peaking at the right time. With all that being said, Hamilton to beat the spread. Argonauts may still win, but Hamilton, we've seen, will not let you go gently into the night. For listening to our show, Third Down Gamble is hosted on Podbean and can be found on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. Follow us on Twitter at Third Down Gamble. Join us again with the Third Down Gamble podcast, audio worth watching. Third Down Gamble uses the expert resources provided by Canadian Football League player and game statistics, for analytics, game notes, and statistics, and 3downnation.com for news, insight, and in-depth analysis. Please visit cfl.ca and 3downnation.com for the most up-to-date information on the Canadian Football League.